Hi folks, Steve here. Welcome back to the Natural Curiosity Project, the place for stories that matter. I'm a writer, which means that I'm also a pretty serious reader. I like to say that writing is my craft and reading is my gem. And one author whose books have meant a lot to me, in fact, I'd consider him a mentor, even though we've never met, is a guy named John McPhee. If John McPhee were to ever start a podcast, I like to think it would be an awful lot like the Natural Curiosity Project. If his books are any indication, he's a really curious guy. They all fall into that genre that I love, which is called creative nonfiction. It includes people like William Least Heat Moon, Bill Bryson, Annie Dillard, and of course, John McPhee. Creative nonfiction means writing about subjects that are real, but that incorporate storytelling into the narrative. Now, I first ran across McPhee's work when I took a writing workshop back in the 90s from William Least Heat Moon, the inspiring author of one of my all-time favorite books, Blue Highways. One of John McPhee's books, Coming Into the Country, was required reading for the workshop. It's about homesteaders in Alaska back in the days when the Alaska government would give land to people in exchange for their agreement to develop it, to homestead it. Boring subject, you say? Well, consider the story of the guy that's in the book who drove an old school bus up to Alaska. When he got reasonably close to the land he had acquired as part of his homesteading agreement, he parked the school bus, took a cutting torch to it, and cut off the top. He then turned the former top upside down like an overturned turtle shell and drove the school bus, now turned convertible, onto it. Once there, he welded the two together and attached a long shaft with a propeller on one end to the drive shaft of the school bus, shoved his contraption into the water of the river there, started the engine, and motored a few hundred miles to his newly acquired homestead. You see what I mean? Story. It's everything. Anyway, McPhee has written about a breathtaking range of topics. He wrote Annals of the Former World, in which he took a series of road trips across the United States with a geologist, looking at freeway road cuts to understand the dynamic geology of North America, and in the process writing a magnificent book about the geology of the continent. He wrote The Pine Barrens, the story of the great pine forests that cover most of southern New Jersey and the people who live there. He wrote Uncommon Carriers about the world of cargo carriers, all kinds that form the basis of the global supply chain. He wrote Oranges, about the business of growing and selling them in Florida. He wrote Encounters with the Archdruid, about the interactions between conservationists and those who they see as the enemy. And he wrote The Curve of Binding Energy, the story of Theodore Taylor, an early nuclear engineer who was also an anti-nuclear activist. By the way, here's a quote from Annals of the Former World that shows what kind of a writer McPhee is. Now, this is the book about the geology of North America. If by some fiat I had to restrict all this writing to one sentence, and by the way, folks, the book is two and a half inches thick, this is the one I would choose. The summit of Mount Everest is marine limestone. Think about that. So far, John McPhee has written more than 30 books, and I've read them all. I can honestly say that each one has made me a measurably better writer and thinker. But the book that really struck me, the one that really stuck with me more than any of the others, is called The Control of Nature. 
That book has been in my head a lot lately as I watch what's going on in California, specifically with the damage caused by the heavy rains and the flooding, and in the country or world in general as climate change has its way with us. The control of nature is divided into three sections, Atchafalaya, Catching the Lava, and Los Angeles Against the Mountains. Each section tells a story of human hubris, of our largely futile efforts to make nature do something that nature simply doesn't want to do, like changing the direction of the Mississippi River, or trying to redirect lava flows in places like Hawaii and Iceland away from population centers. By the way, Iceland dumped cold water on one of their flows. Or protecting Los Angeles infrastructure from damage caused by flooding by building flood canals like the cement-bound L.A. River. How's that working out? Some of you may remember a quote that I toss out a lot. It's from Lauren Isley, another of my favorite writers. Back in the 60s, Lauren, who was an anthropologist, said, When man becomes greater than nature, nature, which created us, will respond. Well, she's responding. And one of the lessons we can choose to learn from her response is that this is not a time for head-to-head combat. I used to tell my scuba diving students that it doesn't matter how strong a swimmer you are or how good a diver you are, the ocean is always stronger. The ocean will win every time, so don't even try. Discretion is the better part of valor, and to ignore that fact can be fatal. As I said, this is not a time for head-to-head combat. Nature versus humanity cannot be a boxing match because the outcome is predetermined, whether we like it or not. Newsflash, we don't win this one. This is more a time for martial arts in which we use our opponent's weight and their strength to work in our favor. Nature is telling us what to do every day. We just seem to have a problem listening. You're not the boss of me, we say. No, actually, you have that backward, nature says. Here, let me demonstrate. The other flaw in the logic is that we have this tendency to think in terms of us versus nature of humans versus the natural world, when in fact, we're as much a part of the natural world as blue whales and chickadees and earthworms and slime molds. We just don't act like it. By viewing ourselves as something apart from nature, as something better than or superior to nature, we invoke Lauren Isley again. Nature is responding to our abuse, to our attempts to dominate, and her response is swift and sure and painful. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to shift our thinking from us versus nature to us as an integral part of nature. Nice words, but what do they mean? How do they become real or actionable, as people like to say in the business world? The answer is simpler than most of us realize, although it requires deliberate action. There's that word again, deliberate. I throw that out a lot. The answer isn't one great big thing, because if that were the case, nothing would ever change. Here's an example for the techies in the audience. I mean, think about it. What's more powerful, a single mainframe computer or hundreds of personal computers or servers networked together? The answer, of course, is the latter. Although instead of talking about computers here, we're talking about one-person efforts on behalf of the environment of which we are a part that in aggregate amounts to enormously powerful results. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. For example, 
If you live in a house, you probably have a yard, which means that you probably have grass and shrubs and trees and flowering plants and other things to make it look good. The problem is that most of those are probably non-native, which means that they're not ideal for local pollinators like bees and moths and butterflies and even spiders or for other local wildlife. But if each of us were to set aside an area in the back corner of the yard, the size of a typical walk-in closet, say 8 feet by 10 feet, that's 80 square feet that can be allowed to grow wild with local plants, which provide habitat, including food, for native pollinators. I guarantee that if you go down to your local nursery or Audubon Center, you can buy a shaker bottle full of local plant seeds that you can take and shake over whatever your designated area is. Here's another one. We often use broad-spectrum insecticides to get rid of insect pests, which they do very well. But these nicotinoid-based compounds are indiscriminate. They also kill beneficial insects like bees, butterflies, moths, and spiders, and birds, and reptiles, and amphibians, and potentially humans if they leach into the water supply, and they do. So why not switch to environmentally friendly compounds? They're out there, and yes, they may cost a little bit more, but not enough to be a showstopper, especially when you consider the alternative. I don't want to be yet another alarmist here. There's more than enough of that already. But consider this. Pollinators aren't a nice-to-have thing. Bees, moths, butterflies, spiders, and even some birds move pollen from flower to flower, a process that's required for the flower to give rise to fruit. No bees, no pollination. No pollination, no fertilization. No fertilization, no fruits or vegetables. So think twice about using that insecticide. Use something else. Other things? Yeah, there are a lot of them. You know, buy soap and detergents in bulk and refill the same bottle over and over to reduce your plastic consumption. Buy one of those shower heads that allow you to turn the water pressure to a warm trickle when you don't need the full force of the blast. An efficient shower head still puts out about two to two and a half gallons of water a minute, which over the course of a year of showering can really add up, which means that any effort to conserve falls on the correct side of the environmental balance sheet. You don't have to turn the shower off. Just turn it down. It makes a huge difference. What else? Well, set the thermostat in winter one degree cooler and buy a sweater or that cool hoodie you've been jonesing for. There's your excuse. Think before you get in the car to run that errand. Are you close enough to walk instead? I do it every day, a few miles each way, and I feel so much better for having done it. Another thing you can do is buy as much locally produced food as you can. Now, I'm about to do a whole series of episodes on the role that technology can play to help the environment, but just consider this. California can no longer feed the nation. They've depleted their deepwater aquifers to the point that the ground in the Central Valley is measurably sinking, and the drought is making it necessary for farmers to uproot fruit and nut trees and many crops because of the great volumes of water they consume, water that's no longer available, or if it is, it's too salty to use. But even if California can ship produce across the country, we know that that takes its toll on the environment because of the trucks and planes required to do it, and freshness is a concern. We also know that there have been outbreaks of disease, salmonella and listeria, associated with large-scale farming. 
Local produce, on the other hand, is much fresher, it tastes better, it's safer, and it supports a local farmer. And yeah, you're probably going to pay a little more, but how much is your health worth? I'm not trying to channel Chicken Little here. The sky isn't falling, but it's a lot lower than it used to be. And before the naysayers climb all over me, yes, I know that some of the current climate change effects that we're experiencing are happening as a matter of the natural course of things. But I also know, because the science proves it, that we're doing a lot of things that are making it worse. Things that, through minor but deliberate efforts, we could change without a whole lot of personal impact. But there's that deliberate word again, meaning let's stop talking and wringing our hands and putting the bumper sticker on the car that says save the bees or wearing the may the forest be with you t-shirt. Those are all fine, but a bit more minimal effort, but deliberate action would go a very long way. In other episodes and in my leadership workshops, many of you have heard me talk about the danger and ineffectiveness of what I like to call slogan leadership. You know, putting up those motivational posters that show a crew of people on a misty river at sunrise in a rowing skull with the word teamwork across the bottom, or a person standing on top of a mountain, their arms raised in celebration, silhouetted against the sunset with the word commitment across the bottom of the poster. That's what I call slogan leadership. I'm not actually going to do anything, but I'll put up the posters. And while the pictures are pretty, it's a form of responsibility abdication. So let's not abdicate. Let's do. It shows the other corners of the natural world that we're willing to make an effort to play well with others, and it sends the right message to our kids and our grandkids. We can't control nature, but we can harness her awesome power to help clean up our act like a martial arts master does against a stronger opponent. As someone who spends an awful lot of time in the natural world, I would much rather have nature as my ally than my enemy. It's a choice, and it's our move. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, and I just want to take a few additional seconds to thank you for the gift of your time. I started this program because I believe that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, Knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that the only thing that ties the episodes together is that each one covers a story that deserves to be told, and that each story is something that you should be curious about. I hope you enjoyed the journey we covered in this program, and if you did, please take a couple of minutes to write a brief review wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how much it means and how valuable it is to have those reviews. From my heart, thank you. And I'll see you in the next episode.